Amen. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Just a couple of reminders. Uh, Many of our men are out at the men's retreat this weekend at Top of the World, having a great weekend there. And uh, just want to remind you that the first Sunday of May, May the 7th, will not only be sort of a special service here, but we are going to take as many of you as are willing over to the property that day and get a picture before we uh, really the construction starts to get going over there on the property. So we want you to remember that as well. And I know... You know, many of you are praying for me every day, and I certainly appreciate that. But I want to bring something specific to you to be praying for that's, uh, that I'm involved with in a couple weeks. Uh, I have been invited on April the 20th, Thursday, to speak here at Basha to the Fellowship of Christian Students. And I would appreciate your prayers that day as I come onto the campus uh, uh, to, uh, to speak to those students here uh, at Basha. Don't forget to, next Sunday, being Easter Sunday, uh, we are ceasing our announcements from the stage and we are, you know, trying to get you used to going to the website. And next week we're going to roll out our new look bulletin and we think you're really, really going to like it. Uh, so it'll, it'll give you all the highlights of all the things that are coming up. But obviously it just makes it essential for any of us who are part of the Oasis to make sure that that's not just a fan or not just something that we take home and throw away in the garbage, but it's something that we absorb that information that's in there so that we don't miss out on what's going on. Mark chapter 14 this morning as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. And I want to say this, God wants to encourage you today And I believe that this message is going to be encouraging, even though up front, what we're going to be talking about for the first few moments is failure. You're going, wow, Jeff, that's, yeah, thanks. We're going to talk about failure and that's going to be encouraging. Yeah, it really is. Hang in there with me and I think you'll see where where we're going from that. Because in Mark chapter 14... The disciples of Jesus Christ undergo four tests, and yet they fail every one of them. Every one of them, they fail. Now, first of all, what we can gain from that, what we can learn from that, hopefully, is to learn from their mistakes. To go, okay, they failed in this area, so this is something that I need to make sure that I'm keeping up on, if you will. But that's not the end of the message that God has for us today. But that's where I want to begin. I want us to look through this chapter briefly this morning, and I want us to see, in a sense, each of these tests, and where did the disciples of Jesus Christ fail in each of these areas. The first is a test of priority. A test of priority. Beginning in verse 3 of chapter 14, we have a story that's very familiar to you. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He is at the home uh, of Simon the leper. He's sitting there reclining at a table, and all of a sudden a young woman comes to him and literally breaks this very expensive jar of perfume, and she begins to anoint him with this perfume. As she's doing that, the Bible says that literally the other disciples and other people in the house are literally 
angry with her. In fact, in the original language, it says they're snorting at her. It's like, oh my goodness. It's like, how could you do that? You know, why are you doing that? And then we learn a little bit further as you read the story that, that when they find out what she's doing and with what she's doing it with, that this is a very, very costly, expensive perfume. In fact, it is equivalent to a year's wages in that day. And think about it. I don't obviously know how much you make in a year, but can you imagine taking the value of what you earn in a year and literally breaking the value of that and literally pouring it out, in a sense, over Jesus Christ? That, that's what she did. And she gets criticized for it. People are saying, oh my goodness, what a waste. Think about it. When they say that, they're not just criticizing the woman, they're actually demeaning Jesus. Because in a sense, what they're saying is, Jesus, you're not worth all that. You're not of that kind of value. Why should we waste all that just pouring it out, anointing it on Jesus Christ? What we have here, is we have here a test of priority. You see, to this woman, the priority of of her life, the most important person in her life, the most valuable person in her life was Jesus Christ. Therefore, there's nothing that she could do that could truly express how much she loved him and appreciated him. She was literally extravagantly pouring out her affection on Jesus Christ. And I believe even that this woman, by anointing him in the way she did, was maybe one of the very few believers or followers of Jesus at this point that really understood what was going on in Jesus' life. Because Jesus kept saying to them, I'm going to go and I'm going to die. I'm going to lay down my life for you. And most of them really didn't either let that sink in or get to it. By her doing this, I think she's saying, look, I know what's about to happen here. I know you're about ready to die. And I want to tell you as one of your followers, I so appreciate and love the fact that you are willing to give up your life for me. And because of that, Jesus, I'm pouring out the most costly, expensive, extravagant thing that I have. And I'm giving it to you as a sign of the value and worth that you are to me. All of us as followers of Jesus Christ should always make sure that the priority of our life is Jesus Christ. Not anything else, not anyone else. Because you'll notice in this passage too, that part of the criticism is they say, well, we could have sold the value of that perfume and we could have given it to the poor. And you know what Jesus' response was? You will always have the poor with you. But me, not always. And I want you to contrast the always, not always. Jesus is saying right now, this woman has an opportunity while I'm still here to show her love for me. I'm not going to be here much longer. I'm going back to the Father in heaven. You'll have other opportunities to minister to the poor. He's not saying it's not important to minister to others. He's not saying it's not important to care for others. He's not saying it's not important to take care of others. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is, though, I should be the priority of your life. That 
You can take care of the poor, but you should always worship me. And so often as Christians, let me say this. I think that we sometimes substitute our serving others and even doing for others and all of this for our devotion, our love, our appreciation for Jesus himself. See, nothing substitutes for that. When was the last time you or I did something that we just wanted to show Jesus how much we loved him, how much we appreciated him, how much he meant to us? That's why worship is important. Can, can I say that? That's what so, you know, grieves me when Christians aren't flocking into the house of God to worship Him or to spend their individual lives worshiping Him. Because that's one of the ways, one of the main ways that you and I in this side of heaven can show Jesus, Jesus, you mean all the world to me. I want to worship you. I want to fill my life with praise. I want to be a thankful Christian because I want to show you, Jesus, that you are my top priority. What did Jesus tell the church at Ephesus in Revelation? I have this against you. As a church, you have left your first love. Paul says to the Colossians that in everything, Christ should have the preeminence, first place, number one. Well, guess what? Here in this home of Simon the leper, there was one young lady out of all the followers of Jesus Christ that passed that test. That to her, Jesus Christ meant more, was worth more than anything, than anything else. And she didn't care who criticized her. She didn't care. She, she noticed she didn't open up the jar. She broke that jar. She sort of went to a place where there was no point of going back after that. You break the jar and all of a sudden, all this expensive perfume and stuff just begins to fill that house. You can smell it. And you can imagine that that very costly, very strong perfume, not only would have just filled that house for hours, if not even days, but you can imagine that Jesus would have smelled like that. Think about the fact that, maybe this is something you never thought about, that as Jesus went through his trial, his scourging, his beatings, having the crown of thorns placed on his head, having his beard plucked out, being nailed to the cross, that there was still going to be that perfume sort of wafting off of his person that she gave. And notice something else here in this passage. When she began to get criticized by others, Jesus defended her. Jesus stood up for her. I love that. He will stand up for those of us who put him as the priority of our life. Because when we do put him as the priority of our life, many times we will be criticized by others. Sometimes by other followers of Jesus. Just as she was. But Jesus stands up for those. He says, Why are you bothering her? Verse 6. She has done a good service for me. She has done what is beautiful and appropriate. And then he says in verse 9, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. We'll never forget her, Jesus says. I will always remind people of what she did. Why? Because she got it right. There was a test of priority going here in the last few days of Jesus' life on earth in that home of Simon the leper and all the other followers failed the test. They were more worried about, 
you know, the finances and, and, and the money and the cost of it all rather than just focusing on Jesus Christ and making Him the very number one priority of their life. Also in this passage, we see a test of pride. Beginning in verse 12, he, Jesus has a Passover with his followers. And during that meal, he tells his followers that one of them, one of the twelve, is literally going to betray him. That's how he sort of begins into it. And then over in verse 27, I want you to look there. Then Jesus said to all of them, you will all fall away. One will betray me, but all of you will fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then notice what Peter said in verse 29. Peter said to him, even if they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth today, this very night before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And notice, all of them, all 12 disciples said, you're right, we will never fall away. We will never deny you. Pride. (laughs) A test of pride. We've got this, God. We're okay. We don't need to heed the warnings. We don't need to listen to you. We've got this. All the Bible is filled with warnings about pride. The book of James says God gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. Paul said to the Corinthians, so the one who thinks he is standing In his own strength and power. Be careful. Be careful. So that you do not fall. In the book of Proverbs. Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. Over and over and over again. Old and New Testament. The Bible warns us about pride. And throughout our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, we will have that test. A test of pride. Because many of us, if not most of us, always think we're spiritually better off and spiritually stronger than we really are. And so here they're basically, you know, affirming. And they're disagreeing with Jesus. And you get that, right? They're disagreeing with Jesus. You're wrong. I mean, I know you're right about everything else, but you're wrong about me. I'm not going to deny you. I'm never going to fall away. A test of pride. And we know that they failed that test. Then beginning in verse 32, in this great scene from the Garden of Gethsemane, we have a test of preparation They go to this place called Gethsemane. Isn't it interesting, too, that what's happening here in this garden that night, even between Jesus and the Father and everything that's going on with the disciples and all of that, there's a spiritual battle going on in that garden. 
And isn't it interesting if you go all the way back to the very beginning of all this, that in the book of Genesis, where did the very first spiritual battle take place? In a garden. And by the way, the word Gethsemane, obviously because it's on the Mount of Olives, means oil press. It was a place in that area where they would take the olives, obviously, off and they would press them into olive oil. And it's a great then picturesque word of even what's going on here spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Jesus is being pressed, obviously, and so are the other disciples. In fact, that's really what this chapter is reminding us, that that these tests are coming, uh, and and the heat, if you will, is being turned up on the disciples. How are they going to act? How are they going to respond? With the test of priority, with the test of pride, and now with the test of preparation. And so we see Jesus saying to his disciples in verse 32, Sit here while I pray. And then he took Peter, James, and John with him and became very troubled and distressed. He said to them, my soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Remain here. Stay alert. Stay spiritually prepared. Going a little further, we see him throwing himself down. We see again the struggle, the battle that he's going through between his own humanity and his own deity and between flesh and between spirit and all of that. And then he comes back. After this, and he finds his disciples in verse 37 sleeping, and he says to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake even for an hour? Stay awake and pray so that you will not fall into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, Jesus knows. Guys, the only chance you have is to be prepared. And this in the, in the, Garden of Gethsemane, this is an opportunity to prepare. This is an opportunity to be with the Father, to be in His presence, to fellowship with Him, to pray, to call upon Him, to ask Him for strength. And you're failing here. You're not prepared. And because you're not using your preparation time now, you're going to fail later on tonight and tomorrow. Now, it's not only about what's happening here. Because we know that Jesus was an example that I'm living every day preparing. That's why throughout the Gospels, you saw that as he chose these followers of his, that they always saw him going away, going up somewhere, being by himself with the Father, praying and all of that. That Jesus wanted to show that you and I cannot just flip on our super spiritual selves like a switch on a, on a wall that turns a light on. Even though that's the way many Christians live, it's as if I don't need to prepare every day, even though I don't know what's coming tomorrow, I I can just sort of get by today and do the very least that I can and not be like Jesus uh, and, and heed his warning of staying alert, staying awake, praying, being engaged spiritually, you know, studying the word, reading the word, being around other believers. Uh, that I don't need to do that. I'll be prepared. Sort of all ties together, doesn't it? Sort of shows pride and lack of the priority that Jesus is in our life. That's why I exhort all of us, including myself. We want to get something out of our time together corporately on Sunday, whether it's through worship or through the word, then that means you and I need to be preparing Monday through Saturday. We can't just come in here on Sunday 
have had no interaction with God all week, Monday through Saturday, and somehow think, I'm really going to get engaged with God for that one hour, even though the other hundred and some hours of the week, I had no engagement with God at all. It doesn't work that way. I will guarantee you this, based upon the truth of God's Word. When you and I engage with God all week, and we are prepared, then when we come into the house of God on Sunday or on Wednesday night or whenever it is, or whenever we get together with unbelievers, we will get so much more out of it. Why? Because we're prepared. Because we're prepared. Because again, spirituality is not something that can be flipped on like a light switch. I can't go disengage with God, disengage with God, out of fellowship with God, out of fellowship with His Word, with prayer, with other believers. And then all of a sudden, something happens in my life, and I've got to go from where I am in a very weakened, spiritual, unhealthy state and think that somehow there's a switch on, right, that I can just flip it on, and I can go from spiritually unhealthy and unfit and, and, and weak, all now I can become super Christian in just a matter of seconds. No. No, it doesn't work that way. Jesus is saying, be in a state of preparation all the time. And the disciples failed. They failed that test. Which is, again, one of the reasons why they failed so miserably in their denial and falling away in just a few hours. I love, though, that even though Gethsemane is a place of battle, Jesus also shows us that Gethsemane is also a place of resolve, of marvelous resolve, because at the very end, he says in verse 41, he came to them again and said, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough of that. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us go. Look, my betrayer is approaching. And don't miss the fact that Jesus is the one who goes out to meet his foe in battle. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. He goes out to meet them. And why does he do it? Because he loves us so much. He did this because he loves us so much. Well, finally, in verse 43 through verse 52, we have a test of perseverance. Because again, it goes down through Judas coming with the soldiers and he gives Jesus a kiss to identify that this is the man and they arrest him and all these things that are going on around the arrest. And Jesus says in verse 48, have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me like you would an outlaw? Day after day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, yet you did not arrest me, but this has happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Don't miss then verse 50. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Every last one of them. Now there's also a young man that we do not have identified here. He's not named in verses 51 and 52. This young man was following him, wearing only a linen cloth. They tried to arrest him, but he ran off naked, leaving even his cloth behind. Now again, I'm not going to take a lot of time here because it's speculation, and I don't like to spend any time speculating, but I do believe that the young man was Mark, the young man that was the author of this gospel. What I want you to see, though, is 
The disciples failed the test of perseverance. They had been with him up to a point, been following him to a point, but now, just as Jesus predicted, all of them, all 12 of them, well, one betrayed him, the other 11, all fell away. They abandoned him. They turned their backs on him. Sorry, Jesus, the heat's on. I'm out of here. Now, one thing I want to say is this. Some of you have been through times in your life or seasons of your life where you felt isolated and very alone. Do you know Jesus gets that? He really does. Because you, you see here right now in, in sort of the, the time of his life where it would have been more important for him to have support around him than at any other time he had to stand alone and do the will of God. There was none of his followers around. They all left. So he, when, when you feel alone, when you feel isolated, Jesus totally understands that. He totally does. But what I want us to see this morning is the disciples had a chance here to pass a test of perseverance. Because being a follower of Jesus Christ, as we say many times here, is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And the Bible, again, just like it does with pride, over and over, Old and New Testament, exhorts us to be Christians and become followers of Jesus Christ who will endure, who will persevere, because it's a long, hard, difficult road to stay on. And many people get started, and they can even be on that road for maybe years. But by the end, somewhere along the line, they drift away and they fall away, just like the disciples. Which is why the writer of Hebrews says, let's run with endurance this race set before us. Hebrews 12, 1, 2, and 3. Looking unto Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Think of him who endured such opposition of sinners against himself so that you and I do not grow weary in our souls and give up. Many of us quit. We give up. And Jesus doesn't want any of his followers to ever give up or quit. And now I want you to see how this message turns. Because even though we have went through this chapter, and we have seen his disciples undergo four tests, and they failed every one of them, Here's what I want you to see. And I want you to tie it in with what we just talked about, about never quitting and never giving up. And we sang about it today, too, quite often. I want you to see the words of Jesus to his followers, even in the midst of all their failure. Look at verse 28. This is a verse that really God used to get me to the place where this is where this message was born. After I am raised. Now again, remember the context here. They've already failed the test of priority. They've already failing the test of pride. He knows they're going to fail the test of preparation. And he knows they're going to fail the test of... He knows they're going to fail. And yet, he says to them, After I am raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. You know what he's saying there. 
He's saying, guys, even though you have failed me, even though you will fail me, I'm never giving up on you. I still want to lead you. I still have plans for you. I still have purposes for you. In fact, obviously in Jesus' mind, he understands your greatest days to those 11 men, your greatest days are still ahead of you spiritually. I'm going to use you in, in ways you can't even imagine. Even though you are failing me right now, I'm not giving up on you. I never will. And that's the message that God wants to get out today to you and I. Listen, we as followers of Jesus Christ should never set out to fail. Obviously. That, that should not be our goal, is to fail. But we have to come to an understanding that we will fail. We will fall. We will be knocked down at times by others. And we should always learn from our mistakes and learn from our failures. Certainly the Bible teaches that. The Bible says it's foolish to keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. We should learn from our failures and learn from our mistakes so that we don't make those same mistakes over and over again. But the Bible also teaches this. We will fail. We all will fall. But listen to the words of God. Psalm 145, 14. The Lord supports all, not some, all who fall. Did you get that? The Lord supports all who fall down and lifts up all who are bent over. The meaning is all who are weighed down, all who are discouraged. Maybe because they've been knocked down by others or maybe because they've fallen down themselves. But the Bible says the Lord wants to support you. The Lord wants to lift you up. And he wants to do that today. Because as the Lord looks down on us, as he did his own disciples, we're going to fall at times. We're going to fail at times in our walk with the Lord. The most important thing, though, is how do we respond to our fall? How do we respond to our failure? And I want you to listen to this verse out of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 24, 16 says this, Although a righteous person may fall seven times, which simply means over and over again, he or she gets back up again and again. Now, let's look at that for a moment. First of all, many Christians, if they st that would blow their mind because in their mind, being righteous doesn't equate with falling or failing. But the Bible says, oh yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. See, being righteous doesn't mean I'm sinless. Being righteous doesn't mean I'm perfect. Being righteous simply means, first of all, that I accept God's standard of righteousness. That I don't try to tweak what the standard is. The standard is absolute holiness. 
That's the standard. That's part of what it means to be righteous before God. But the other part of being righteous before God is that I do not seek to to stand before God in my own self-righteousness, but I accept His provision of righteousness, which comes only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, when I acknowledge His standard of righteousness, when I'm willing to accept His standard, and I'm willing to say, God... I, I have nothing to bring you. There, there's no righteousness in me of which I could come before you and stand before you and have a relationship. But I know that what Jesus did over here, I know that's sufficient. I know that's satisfactory. So God, I trust in His provision of righteousness for me so that I can stand before you. Then the Bible says God justifies us. God declares us righteousness, righteous, not based upon our own righteousness, but based upon the fact that we are willing to take and accept the righteousness that's only found in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be righteous. But again, that means that even righteous people will fail. It means righteous people will fall over and over again in our lives. Because we're still people of flesh. We still have that old nature. What God wants us to get is that when we fall, when we're knocked down, when we fail, we don't stay there. Because again, Proverbs 24, 16, although a righteous person may fall seven times, seven in the Bible, a number of just talking about ongoing. Just like when Peter said, how often should I forgive? Seventy times. It's just a number that's Talking about perpetual. Although a righteous person may fall seven times, he or she rises again and again and again. By the way, the word rise means to stand up. To step forward. And let me also remind us of this. This is where especially our spiritual enemy, the devil, comes into play. When he sees that we are knocked down by others or even maybe himself, or when we have failed or fallen and failed the Lord in some way, you know what then he exerts all his energy in doing? Keeping us there. Keeping us down. Because he understands every hour I can keep them from standing again, every day I can keep them from standing up again, every week I can keep them stand, from standing again, every month, every year that goes by, I win and I win something out of that because I am preventing them from seeing what God could do with their lives if they just stood back up. And so many followers of Jesus Christ, like the disciples, because we all have fallen, we all have failed the Lord. Our biggest mistake, if you will, isn't even in the initial getting knocked down or falling or failing. It's in the failure to rise back up again. It's in the failure to take a hold of the hand of Jesus who is reaching down to us, who says, I will support you when you fall. I will lift you back up. 
And we fail as followers of Jesus Christ to take his hand and let him lift us back up and raise us back up and stand up again. Isn't that what he did with the prophet Elijah? Who had gotten so despondent and so discouraged. He said, I'm done. I'm quitting. I'm giving up. And God let him have his little pity party for just a few minutes. And then God came back and said, Elijah, I got some more for you to do. Let's get up and get moving again. See, God doesn't want his people to stay down. Again, God wants us to learn from our mistakes. And God doesn't want us to set out to fail. But we will. And we will fall. And we will get knocked down by others at times. How are we going to respond? Are we going to, with the Lord's help, take a hold of his hand and stand back up? Let me share with you something that probably isn't going to come as a great surprise, but personal for me. I hope you all realize, as people of the Oasis Church, that what's happening here today and what happened seven years ago to start this church would have never happened had Jeff Royce not learned this lesson and gotten back up when I failed or fell or got knocked down. You realize that, right? Yet God had more for me, for you, for all of us. And God wants you to think that same way. Maybe you've been knocked down and you have stayed down for quite a while. You've been hurt. I get it. Maybe you have failed the Lord and fallen so drastically or so, you know, in your mind so badly that you just can't ever see yourself getting back up and really being used of the Lord. The message today, then, is certainly for you. Because God is saying to all of us, although a righteous person may fall seven times, that righteous person, that person who's aligned with me, that person who's right with me, they'll rise up again. They will stand up again. And that's the message that God wants to speak to his people today. He wants us to do that as a church. Because guess what? We're going to be a church as we have that we've fallen. We've failed the Lord in areas at times. He doesn't ever want us to stay down. He wants us to get back up. And God wants you to get back up too. I'm going to ask our worship team to come. I want you to remain seated as our worship team comes. And as they're coming and as they're getting set here on stage, I want to direct your attention one more time back to that verse in Psalm 145, verse 14. And if that's a verse that you've never maybe locked in on, never memorized, never underlined in your Bible, I want you to do that today. Because here's what that verse says. The Lord... Capital L-O-R-D. The Lord supports all who fall and lifts up all, not some, who are bent over 
Again, the words bent over in the Hebrew can also mean those who are weighed down, those who are discouraged. God wants to lift you up today. God is saying to you, you have, you have been down too long. You needed to come today to hear this from me, God, so that you would be encouraged to stand back up. There's not a one of us here that hasn't fallen. There's not a one of us here that hasn't failed the tests at times, just like the disciples. There's not a one of us here who hasn't been knocked down by others. But God is saying to his people today, rise, decide to rise in me. Stand back So before we all stand this morning, I'm standing, they're standing, so you won't feel like you're standing all alone out there. Maybe even if you are like that young lady who was all alone and pouring out her affection and love for Jesus Christ because he was the priority of her life and she didn't care what anybody else thought. I'm asking you here today, would there be any of you here today that in a sense, in a very symbolic way, would say, God has spoken to me today through His Word and by His Spirit. And I can hear Him say to me, Stand up. Stand up, son. Stand up, daughter of mine. Stand up, ma'am. Stand up, sir. And if you hear Him say that, would you just stand right now wherever you are? Thank you. Thank you. You hear God saying to you, stand up. I love you. Stand up. Jesus loves you. Jesus will never give up on us. No matter how many times we fall or how many times we fail or how many times we get knocked down, Jesus will always say to us, My son, my daughter, rise, stand back up. Let me lift you up today. I want you to be encouraged today. It's time for all of us. God has special plans for this church. But you know what it's going to take? It's going to take all of us standing up and stepping forward. And the enemy wants to keep us all down so that we, even as a corporate body, a community of believers, never really see all that God wants to do with us. He wants to keep you down. And we are coming into a season now where, no, no, we're not going to be down anymore. We're going to let God raise us up and show us what he can do. You've got to be convinced your best days spiritually are ahead of you. And no matter how you fail, no matter how you fall, no matter how often you have, no matter how many times you've been knocked down, your greatest days are ahead of you. Now I want to invite all of us to stand. And I want us to sing this last song as a song of declaration from our hearts to God. God, we get it.
We may have fallen, we may have failed you, we may have been knocked down, but it's time to rise up again with you. And we are ready to pass the test of priority, the test of pride, the test of preparation, and the test of perseverance. God, we're ready for what you have for us because we're not going to stand up on our own. We're standing up in you. Let's declare this to the Lord this morning.